What's up? My name is Matt Issa, here to bring you episode four of Blazing the Trail. On this episode, we'll be spotlighting the legacy of one of the greatest shooters that ever lived. I personally have him at number two, but that's a different story for a different miniseries. Reggie Miller. Please remember that the article I wrote on Miller is also live as we speak, and you can find the link to that and parts one through three of this series in the description below or just by visiting basketballnews.com. On this episode, we chat with 23-year NBA coach Bob Osepka, who coached Miller during the late 80s and early 90s, as well as Mike Prada, an NBA editor at The Athletic and the author of the soon-to-be New York Times bestseller, yeah, I'm manifesting that in the atmosphere, Mike. Spaced out. Quick sidebar. If you are interested in pre-ordering the book before it hits shelves in November, I'll be leaving a link to that in the description below. So go ahead and support Mike. He's an awesome guy. Again, please be sure to check out the article I wrote on Miller. Along with the insights I got from Coach and Mike, it also has quotes from my interviews with Rick Smiths and Coach Dan Burke both of whom will be featured on a bonus Miller episode dropping at the end of this series. Anyway, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you turn to for your podcast consumption. We have so many more great interviews with players and coaches coming up, and I really just don't want you guys to miss out. For instance, next time we spotlight the career of one of the most versatile defenders in NBA history, Andre Kirilenko. Joining us on the podcast will be Jerry Sloan's longtime assistant, Coach Gordon Chiesa, and resident Karolinko expert Cody Hodek of the Thinking Basketball podcast and YouTube channel. And because everyone loves AK-47 so much, we'll also be doing a bonus episode featuring Coach Tyrone Corbin and his former teammate, Michael Ruffin. So yeah, do the thing, subscribe, and stay tuned. Without further ado, I give you Blazing the Trail. start out you know you've done I think you started out in the 80s right with the Pistons as a scout am I right right yeah I was uh I was coaching in high school and mm-hmm. uh, I always I was in, in the Chicago Catholic League and had a lot of success there but you know the Catholic schools don't pay much mm-hmm. I changed jobs I always say I I uh I doubled my salary and tripled my losses so as I was taking my lumps there, I uh, uh, coach for, uh, Dick Versace is the uh, is the guy who hired me in high school, and mm-hmm. I maintained contact with him. Anyway, he was an assistant with the Pistons at the time, and so he gave me some advice on what I needed to do, and I didn't have the same talent level, things to change. So he invited me up to uh, to the Pistons camps, and I wound up going out to the uh, LA Summer League, and uh, just you know basically to learn and apply NBA type stuff to, to, to my new program, which helped me tremendously. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another, he asked me to, to see some games for him when they couldn't get a guy in and it just turned into, uh, 
into a long-term deal for me, fortunately. Yeah. So I was going to say you've done, you know, don't work with the Pistons, I think, the Pacers, Cavs, Clippers, um, Trailblazers, right? Oh, yeah. I got everybody in the Bulls division. I every, every team there. And uh, I don't know if you mentioned Philly, but yeah, I've been all over the place. Yeah, exactly. So um, just to like narrow it down, can you explain for people who, who end up listening to this, what your role was on that, on the Pacers from uh, 89 to 93? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that uh, here I am, I'm a high school coach who mm-hmm. one day is coaching his high school team and all of a sudden, boom, I'm, I'm in the NBA. So Really, that first, uh, I came in mid-season, so it was like in January of, uh, of 89, and, uh, and basically, I, I was learning what to do, and uh, you know, I, man, I just stayed out of the way and, and learned from, from NBA players, and uh, Dave Twarzyk was an assistant, uh, Mel Daniels was there, mm-hmm. uh, Dick Versace, of course, became the head coach, uh, working for Donnie Walsh, a general manager, so I did a lot of learning that first year, and then uh, basically, what they had me do is is get on the road, and, uh, and there there weren't as many uh, assistants at that time. So I I did uh, NBA scouting, which I was a little bit prepared to do, and also back and forth with the team. So that was kind of my role, and uh, you know, working with with guards and things like that. And uh, that's basically uh, how I how I began in in the NBA. Yeah, exactly. So. Um... Now, for those unaware, you know, I told you about this. I read um, one of your books. I have it in hand, actually. One of the two books you wrote. Um, I think you wrote this one. Was it 2001? Correct? Uh, yeah, it's been a while ago. I yeah. They're out of date. Yeah, you dug it up uh, on eBay, I guess. So uh, Yeah, no. great book. I recommend uh, anyone who, who wants to learn more about X's and O's should read that book. But so you have, as you've mentioned, experience as a scout. So if I was like a head coach and I was to turn to you in the 90s and be like, hey, can you give me a 60-second scouting report on Reggie Miller? What would that sound like? Well, first of all, you uh, you got to stay attached to him. Uh, you can't give him any airspace. Uh, he's a gifted three-point shooter. Uh, we need to, uh, and all screens, whoever is guarding the screener has to get out and show and, and give some support on that and be ready to double team as necessary. Uh, be aware when he gets into the middle of the lane, he loves to, to uh, do a stop and go action where he'll stop, kind of throw you away and, and get, you know, get off, uh, off the screens. If you cheat on a screen and go over the top, he's going to fade uh, for three-point shots. And uh, above all, you got to find him in transition because he's going to run to the three-point line. And, uh, and Reggie was doing that before it became fashionable mm-hmm. now where uh, people are all, are, you know, they're all running the spot to the three-point line. Uh, when, when we started out, uh, guys were running for layups. And I remember coaches saying, get, get to the rim. What are you going to the three-point line for? Run, run to the rim, get a layup. We got a layup here. And, uh, and Reggie kind of, you know, before it was, like I say, fashionable, he would run to the three-point line. And that's why, uh, man, you had to find him in transition because he was going right to that spot and, uh, and he'd bury those threes. Yeah, credit to um, uh, Versace and Coach Hill when they, uh, when they were coaching Miller. They, they let him run a little bit more. But, like, I was watching a lot of uh, the Brown regime and the bird regime. And it's kind of like they played a really slow, really nineties esque pace, a lot of half court offense. And it was just like, you have this, 
this weapon who he's not just a great three point shooter in transition. He was also just a really good finisher in transition. He could get to the rim too and finish efficiently that way. And I'm just like, man, if only, if only he had been paired up with a coach who is more running gun, more of like the, the Don Nelson school of thought, you know, per se. Yeah. And in in this day and age, man, he Mm -hmm. would, he'd rival, you know, the, the Curry's and all those, those Mm -hmm. great shooters. Uh, and, uh, that's, you know, basically how he, how he played back in the day, although mm-hmm. he could hit the mid range shot too. And he yes. for, if you cheated on a screen or you really got on his tail, he, he'd curl into the lane and, and, and was gifted that way also. Yeah. I think, and I think one thing that dawned on me immediately when I started watching him was we kind of did the same thing to Miller that we did to Ray Allen, where we typecasted him as like a spot up shooter or something like that when he was. Miller could score, you know, from the three-point line, from the mid-range at the rim. He was like truly a a complete scorer. He was a complete scorer. He could score from everywhere. Yeah, and it, and the other thing about him, he was he, uh, he was fearless in the clutch mm-hmm. and the clutch mm-hmm. score. And with the game on the line, he landed the shot. And uh, you know, I, I remember the watching from afar those uh, that Knicks series where he hit hit that flurry of mm-hmm. shots at the end to win that game. But uh, that's what he was about, uh, determined and confident in, in his ability to score. And if he missed two, three in a row, he believed he was going to make the next two or three. Yes, yes. Now, Coach, you know, from reading your book, it's clear that you're very familiar with that time period, the coaches during that time period, the personnel during that time period, what they like to run. Was there, there was obviously great shooters during that time. But was there any other shooters during that time? I have one in mind that I'll share with you and I'll see if we match up on it. But was there any other shooters during that time that were like the Miller movement, the floppy guys, the guys who could, you know, run, stop on a dime and just knock down shots? Well, you know, like you said, man, when I started out with uh, with uh, Detroit, uh, mm-hmm. just observing those guys and just, you know, watching what they did, you know, that was the team with uh, – Isaiah Thomas is the point guard, and uh, and Joe Dumars was a guy that played a a similar role to a Reggie, not not as as much of a three point shooter, but mm-hmm. he was a guy that uh, you know kind of when we went to Indiana, Coach Versace coming from there ran a lot of things that uh, Chuck Daly did, and so uh, him coming off those staggered screens on the baseline were yeah the yeah, floppy elbow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, back in the day, we called it fist. And then when Pat Riley started calling it floppy, everybody said, you know, it's all it's floppy now. Yeah, exactly. But uh, so Joe Dumars was was that type of guy that was had that knack for getting free off screens. And uh, uh, Vinnie Johnson, guys like that uh, uh, back in the day, you know, could could bury those shots coming off screens. But uh, uh, the names, you know, the that's 30 years ago or so, maybe maybe longer. So. Mm -hmm. Give me, give me your guy. Who's, who's the yeah. one you're talking about? Yeah. So Dumars obviously was a great shooter during that time, but in my opinion, from what I've seen from him, obviously you've watched him a lot more than me. I felt like he was a better like spot up shooter than, um, than like a movement guy, but mine was Chris Mullen. I thought that Chris Mullen during that time, he played like, he obviously was better on the ball. I would say three point shooter also, but like he, he played off the ball and, you know, he could move, he could catch, he could shoot. What do you think of that? Yeah, and he was uh, he was also the type of guy that uh, uh, constant motion, and he's mm-hmm. a guy that if you uh, if you cheated on the screen, he knew how to read it. And mm-hmm. uh, I remember they they came into practice uh, in our facility, uh, 
one one day on an open open day where it was a, a community type gym, so you know people could stay around. I just stayed for a bit and just watched him work and work on his shot and work on reading screens, coming off screens. He was a tireless tireless worker, but yeah, he's a guy that man, you your work was cut out if you're guarding him, no doubt. Yeah, and like the the originator of like that off ball superstar. I'm sure you'll love this name. He's probably it's probably like John Havelcheck. Oh yeah. And, and so I was wondering because you're with Miller early in his career, so you get to see like the younger, more spry Miller. Was was there ever a conversation you guys had or some sort of insight you got on him where he maybe opened up about trying to emulate a certain type of player or like mimic a certain type of player? You know, interestingly, you know when uh, uh, you know, NBA guys are. Uh, they're protective of that. Even uh, you know, you look at a lot of the things that uh, Kobe Bryant did uh, emulated what uh, Michael Jordan did. He, he, you know, you could see that. I don't know if he ever spoke about consciously mm-hmm. doing that, but I think Reggie was very protective about his own identity. And when uh, I kind of remember when Coach Versace said something about Joe Dumars and how he was using the screen, he 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 didn't like. It. He wanted to do it his own way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's. Uh, uh, that's what makes these guys so great is that they, uh, they have confidence in themselves, their ability. And in, uh, in his case, I, you know, maybe, maybe he would say differently now, but I didn't, I felt he didn't want to be labeled as somebody else. He wanted to do it his own way. Yeah. And no, I, I agree. And you can tell because like w- when Miller comes into the league, he's just like a player like him, a six, seven guy who plays in the wing, they play a certain type of way. They play, isolation, you know, those long drawn out post-ups, things of that nature. They want to, they want to beat you that way. Triple threat. And Miller had a good triple threat, by the way. But um, Miller is just such a, like, he's, it's very rare. I think you see a guy that dominant, but touching the ball that little, especially during that time. And it's really hard to find a historical comparison to him. And Havelcheck is the one that I like. I, I feel like is the one that came before him that might have influenced how he played. I know Chris Mullen has said that he he watched a lot of Havelcheck growing up, so I feel like that's the closest one. But you're right; it is hard. I've been I haven't had a tough time like finding uh, a soundbite of him mentioning someone he was trying to mimic. Yeah, no, he had his own identity, and mm-hmm. uh, interestingly, though the uh, the stuff that that's in these books, these plays. You don't see many of him anymore. Yeah, I want to. I want to get to that. I want to get yeah. to that. So when when Reggie played, a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff, uh, uh, he might have been a first option uh, on on a set, but then mm-hmm. there were you know there were uh, other actions to follow. Yes. And uh, if people geared up, which they did, to stop him, you know, you'd go to option two, option three, and, and so on. And uh, it's a totally totally different game now, the, the way we look at it, where. You, you know, you get the ball, go get your own, you know, make your own move. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, I don't remember the, the step back shot as, as prevalent as it is now. And uh, guys now have developed that knack. They're one-on-one, man, if, if they're good going to the basket, like Reggie was, you know, they, you know, you got to play for the drive and then boom, they step back. And now, now they're burying threes with range. So it's, it's a lot different now. Yeah. And Miller, Miller did have that that step back in his bag, but I do want to talk uh, one specific play set in the book really quickly. So I, I remember I started watching watching these Pacers games, and I noticed, um, you know, you remember when the Raptors ran the box and one defense on Curry with Nick Nurse, and I saw that, but I saw the Pacers running it on offense, and I'm like, 
what is this? And I, I, so I start to read your book and you start to talk about these, these box sets. Can you explain like how the box set works and how, how Miller was able to make it so effective for the Pacers? Are you talking about the zipper, uh, the, the zipper set? Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, most of the time we would try to uh, align Reggie opposite the way the ball was entered. Mm-hmm. So we would try to take the ball to the right wing and then you'd, you'd zipper up uh, the, the three man. And in our case with the Pacers, it might've been Chuck person. And, and again, whatever side of the floor he took, it, it was either Reggie coming up to catch the first pass or Chuck person. And then on the opposite side, and we had uh, LaSalle Thompson, or it was a great screener, would mm-hmm. come down and uh, they talked about, you know, use the term pin down, they'd pin down for him. And uh, then sometimes we would widen Reggie out, take the ball opposite him. And then when it was zippered to the top, you know, they would run a, uh, an angle screen, an angle pin down to the corner where Reggie would come off. And he just had that great knack of if there was any daylight, come off that screen and, and quickly up into his shot with, uh, you know, with great, you know, great accuracy. Um, if, uh, if he was on the ball side of it and uh, you cheated on it, he had, he also had that knack of popping back to the corner. And so again, once again, we keep talking about his ability to read screens and use screens and, uh, and he would, he would get his body next to you and he'd throw you off the defender would be off balance. Cause he had a great stop and go action. He'd move you and boom, he was, he was quick to, to get back off and, and excellent footwork up into his shot. Yeah, I remember. So I was watching an old segment on NBA TV they did where Miller's, you know, they let him go on the court and they start physically demonstrating some things. And he outlined his three-step process off ball. And it was like, set your defender up, read the screen, and then set your feet. And so, you know, as I'm watching him, I'm realizing he's actually like, that's the thing that's going on in his head as he's doing all these things. Like he starts out, he'll be at the baseline and he'll be, he'll be like, you know, he'll go from a non-athletic stance to like top speed in an instant. And it completely throws the defender off balance. And then he's so good. Like you said, he knows if the big is dropping, he knows to pop, like to pin out, um, like to curl in, or if they're going to hedge, he knows how to like fang out a little bit more to give himself some distance and make it harder for his man to go through that screen. And then of course his footwork was just like impeccable. But yeah, you're right. He's, you know, one of the all-time great screen readers and just guys playing off screens. He's like a middle linebacker out there, just the way he reads it. Yes. No, he's, he, he was gifted. No doubt about it. Had, had the mental uh, capacity and the ability to, uh, to understand you know, all those things that you articulated mm-hmm. are second nature to him. And he just yes. did it kind of automatically. Yeah. Now, Coach, you, you highlighted this. And one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you is just because, you know, you have such a, an understanding of that time and the X's and O's of that time. But can you, and we kind of talked about this when we were on the phone, but can you kind of explain to me the progression of X's and O's from the time you started and how different they are today? Yeah, geez, back in, in, in the day, if you were scouting a, a game, you had, uh, number one, you didn't have the ability to uh, uh, watch the, the tape of the game after it was over. Mm. You, know, you, you had a file report basically basically in, uh, on what you just observed and uh, the way that the, the other team identified their, their plays with the calls and that kind of thing. Uh, you had to go back to the hotel room, write the stuff up, fax it in. There's a fax thing in. And it's, uh, all that's evolved into the computerized thing. And 
Uh, now when guys go to scout a game, uh, they, they basically they have a sheet where they chart the, the, the time and the call, and then they can go back to their room and, and, and watch the play and then exactly write the play and put it in the computer and, and zip it in. So all that from a technology standpoint is totally, totally changed. In terms of how the game has been played, I think uh, uh, and, and yeah, it's basically it's changed a lot since I've been out of it nine years now. I've been mm-hmm. 2013. But uh, since that time, uh, it seems like uh, the set plays that you see in these books and everything, you, you don't see them anymore. Like, you know, the, the fist play, I don't see many teams run, run those plays. Uh, some teams run no plays. And, you know, you look back at, at Houston when D'Antoni was there, Guys were spread out, hired and had the ball. Guys were, you know, just play was a, a one-on-one type uh, type action. And uh, if he, you know, if you helped on him or you doubled on him, he'd find the open guy and he'd make his shot or he'd make his play. And that's kind of how uh, a lot of teams play. Not not totally that way, but they they play in a uh, in a system that uh, allows for individual one-on-one type action. And I think uh, part of it is when. Uh, when the rules changed, you know, when I, when I first started out, you know, it was a physical league. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched the the bad boys in Detroit where, you know, they, they said the NBA is no babies allowed. You know, you go down the lane, they're going to knock you down. And so uh, uh, when they guarded, you know, they, they had a hand on, you could put a hand on a hip and you could steer a guy and you could, you could move them. And now those are fouls. So what happens is you, you have to, uh, you got to keep your feet in front of it. These guys are so good. It's it's tough to do that. So if you help, now you got guys spotted up for three. So it's it's uh, it's really changed, and the talent level has really uh, improved. Also, uh, when when I started with the Pacers, we had Rick Smiths on on a low block. Well, Sal Thompson was on a block. Those those were not you know. Now you got stretch fours, you got stretch fives now. So it's uh, the games has changed in terms of how the personnel is is used these days. So it's it's totally evolved. Um, uh, the, the, like I say, the book I've got here, I don't see, I don't see many of those plays used anymore. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, like you said, coach, um, it's funny you mentioned that. So I talked to coach Burke a couple of days ago and after, after my interview with him, he texted me and he goes like, Matt, I forgot to mention to you because we were talking about like just the degree of difficulty it comes with what, you know, Miller going through these screens, stopping on a dime and knocking down these shots so efficiently, efficiently. He's like, but he's like, I forgot to mention Matt. You have to remember that every time he's going through these screens, somebody's hitting him. They are messing up his rhythm and he has to find a way to not be disrupted and still score. And it's just like, you know, obviously there's a lot of stuff that makes today's game a little more challenging in some aspects. But back then, especially when you're like a frailer guy like Miller and, you know, shooters, they need rhythm. Rhythm is like what they live and die off of ritual, all that stuff. But to have that constant disruption and to still be a 40 plus percent three point shooter is just insane to me. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And that, you know, watching the, the, the coaches uh, teach when I watched uh, Detroit mm-hmm. back, way back in the day, Ronnie Rostein was uh, one of the assistants. And I learned a lot uh, from him defensively. And that's basically what they did. You know, they, you're not going to let the guy run. He gets in the lane, give him one way to go. Don't get on top of him where he can go right or left. Give him one way, get physical and move him. And if he comes off the screen, uh, Lambeer, you go, you'll, you'll get a blast on that guy. Get a, you'll put a shot on him. And if, if they hit two or three shots, be ready to knock him down. 
And those were kind of the, uh, that was kind of the mentality back in the day where it was a, it was a physical, it was a physical game. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned two players that I just want to talk about really quickly. One, Rick Smith's just to me, he had, he had an incredible low post game, first of all, but he was also a really good jump shooter. I feel like he would be a pretty fun, like stretch five in today's game. I think he'd do really well. And then another guy I just wanted to mention who I've fallen in love with over the last couple of weeks is I love Chuck Person's game. He had the coolest nickname, the Rifleman. He was a, a great three-point shooter. He was big. He played good defense. I just want to I want to hear what your thoughts were coaching those two guys. You know, uh interestingly with with Chuck, he he had a great uh, a great aptitude and uh knowledge of of the game and what was happening on the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh I would, you know, after after games, I would I might say something during a game, and he would disagree or something, and then I would go back and look at the at the at the, the film and the tape, and I'd come back the next day. Man, you were one hundred percent right. He knew exactly uh-huh. what was happening, how it was happening, and uh, what needed to be done. Uh, but yeah, he was he had a toughness about him, and uh, and uh, uh, another guy, the rifleman, could shoot it, no doubt about it. He was he was a good player and and a, and a very smart player. You guys just had a lot of like throughout the nineties. I know you weren't, you weren't a part of that staff for the whole nineties, but just so many deep teams, you know, like maybe top end, it wasn't, it wasn't the, you know, the Pistons or the Bulls, their peak, but like just such a deep team, such a well-coached team. And, you know, you guys had some of the best X's and O's I think during the time, but yeah, just a fun era of basketball. I want to ask you, coach, you got to, um, during your time, be a part of two, I think pretty, Pretty important series in NBA history. You get that 91 series against the Boston Celtics, you know, game five, Larry Bird's famous injury comes back in and he, it's like one last like hurrah for him in the garden. He has an incredible second half performance. And then in 93, of course, the beginning of the, the Knicks Pacers saga. Can you tell me what it's like to, to be in the war room in the trenches of these kind of these really important a smorgasbord of just all-time names in the midst of these things. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, uh, when you're when you're back coaching in high school and you uh, mm-hmm. you're watching the you know the Celtics play on TV and you see the you know the Garden, you're watching you know, the games in the Garden. Uh, and then you get there and you say, "Man, this thing, this, this thing is a place is a dump." Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> the locker room is terrible, and and all those stories. No AC. Arch, oh yeah, oh yeah, they uh, they take care of you good there. The Reds ghost was uh, was hovering around, but anyway, uh, that that first one you talk you talk about, I remember that last game where uh, I believe we kind of had a lead. I mean, we were in the game; it was it was a heck of a game going. And then Bird had those back issues, mm-hmm. and uh, and he uh, he left the uh, he left the game when it's in the locker room getting taken care of, and then. Uh, and all of a sudden, I heard a roar, and I never heard a roar that loud in any arena before or after. He came back out of the locker room to, you know, to back to the bench, and the place went absolutely crazy. And then, you know, they pulled it out and and uh, and, and won the game in the series. But uh, yeah, watching those guys, just amazing, amazing stuff. And uh, listening, listening to those guys on the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about Chuck, Chuck Person, and. Uh, I remember we were playing a game there uh, right right before Christmas, and uh, you know you know you got McHale, you got Parrish, you got Burr. I mean, what what a team that was! So uh, Larry Burr is right in front of our bench with Chuck Person guarding him, 
And he, he makes a post feed in to McHale in the post. And uh, Chuck goes down to double uh, the post, which, mm-hmm. you know, not going to leave Larry Bird, but he did. So anyway, McHale immediately kicks the ball back out as Chuck is desperately running to get to the bird. Larry goes, Merry Christmas, Chuck, and just buries the three. So those are, are things that these guys, you know, the confidence and uh, uh, that, that these guys have and the ability to produce is just amazing. But Bird was, he's one in a million, no doubt. Yeah, no, I agree. I remember um, I was watching game five actually this morning. And I remember when when Bird checks in, it's like a timeout, I think, in between. And like literally the, the garden is like, on their feet the entire time out, just cheering him on. Like they like, I've never seen like a fan base just look at like a, a figure in reverence the way they did. Just, I know this is outside the point we're getting lost on the Miller dialogue, but I've got to know because Bird's one of the first guys I ever really scouted once I got into X's and O's. Just, is he, he is as good like as advertised, right? No doubt about it. No doubt. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Now, coach, we've kind of, like I said, we've kind of moved away from the Miller subject. A little bit, but back back to Miller, you've coached a lot of guys. Is, is Miller, he's the best shooter you've ever coached, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no question. No question about it. We had some other guys that were close. I had Jamal Crawford a couple times mm-hmm. in uh, Portland and with the Clippers. Uh, he might be, you know, not, not in Reggie's league, but, you know, very good, excellent, uh, instant offense off the bench. Uh, I'm trying to think. I, you know, he's you, you can't beat Reggie. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned Jamal Crawford because I feel like you had like the the Jamal Crawford equivalent of coaching careers, like with all the different places you ended up at, and Jamal, you know, all the different teams he he played for. He was, you know, he, he was interesting, you know, and, and uh, uh, he, he's a likable guy and uh, and a hardworking guy and a guy that did not want to start. You know, when, uh, when we, we got him with the Clippers, we talked about starting him. I think they talked about it in Portland with, uh, coach McMillan and he said, yeah, I want to come off the bench. That's that became his thing. And, you know, how many times did he win the six man of the year was three, I think. And, uh, so that became his, his niche. And, uh, uh, he won a lot of games for us in, in LA coming off the bench and, and burying shots and an, another guy, which all these, these shooters, you got to have the confidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to let, you know, it, it's gotta be the next play, the next shot. Don't worry about the last one. And, uh, they've got that gift to do that in the supreme confidence. And, uh, Reggie was certain, certainly like that. Yes. And the reason I ask you the question about Miller being the best shooter you've ever coached one, just cause I wanted to know, but two, because I'm wondering, you know, obviously with the all time great players, you can't, there's never a one of one, but if you know, if you're, if you had to, if you had to pick one, is there anyone in today's game who, when you watch him, it's like, okay, yeah, he kind of, he kind of reminds me of Miller. You know, it's, it, it's hard, Matt, because, because mm-hmm. the, uh, the ways Reggie got his shots are, are so different than how guys get their shots now. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it's, it's become a, uh, uh, an isolation one-on-one type thing. You watch the fourth quarter of an N- NBA game and, if there are plays other than high pick and roll, I, I haven't seen too many of them. You know, Golden State runs a lot of action. There's a few teams that do, but but most teams, games on the line, it's it's a high pick and roll, spread out, go get your shot. And defensively, what do they do? They switch. 
So now you got, you know, you got a bigger guy guarding you in, in most cases, or the guy, you know, you set it up so the guy that switches to you is the guy you want to guard you. And that guy goes one-on-one for his shot. And um, and Reggie scored his points differently, more uh, using screens, coming off screens. And when uh, when Donnie Walsh set up the uh, the teams back in the day, he set it up with uh, with trying to get screeners in mind for for Reggie, and uh, and that's why we got LaSalle Thompson uh, for Wayman Tisdale. We you know we we wanted a, a screener in there. And uh, somebody also to play alongside Rick Smith, a rebounder, a tougher guy. But all that is, like I say, is it's a different uh, different animal now, and uh, they guys score differently. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. It's it's funny you mention the Golden State comparison because they do have a very motion heavy offense, and I think that the two guys that are probably the closest to Miller both don that uniform in uh, Clay Thompson and Steph Curry with the movement and the ability to catch and shoot and score with that uh, proficiency. Well, coach, I wanted to ask, you know, Miller, of course, with all his on-court stuff, one of his greatest weapons was, was his mouth at times and his ability to talk trash. What do you have a favorite uh, Reggie Miller trash talking story? Oh boy. I don't know. I just, I remember him getting in that battle with Jordan and uh, mm-hmm. they went, they went at it. And uh, I think the thing about, about Reggie is he never, he never backed down. And uh, you know, he's, you know, like you, you look at him and he was thin and wiry, but he, he had a strength about him too with, with that frame. And uh, I don't really have a specific one, but I, I remember that, that fight with Jordan, which, which was a, was a heck of a battle back in the day. Yeah, no, I mean, he was like the only guy, the only guy who could really get under Jordan's skin. You know, Jordan had that uh, persona. He was like super cool, Clint Eastwood-esque, uh, you know, unfazed, but Reggie Miller knew how to get under his skin. Oh yeah, he 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 would do that to people, no doubt. Yeah. Co- coaches as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I can only imagine. But um, and hey, and uh, directors, right? Yes, yes, uh, no doubt. What's up, Mike? How are you? I'm good. Good. Good to talk to you. Now, so a couple couple of years ago, during peak pandemic period. Um, the Last Dance was coming out, and you decided on your Substack, which, by the way is awesome. Every article on there is like, just like a banger article. And it's really bad. It's sad that, you know, you're doing other things now. It's good that you're doing other things, but it's I'm, sad that I'm happy. I'm doing other things. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. This is all where, Hey, if you like that, just wait for the book. coming out. Oh, I'm so, I'm, I'm so looking <laughs> every time not to take away like too much from the book. Cause obviously it's your story, but like, from what I understand for the premise, like I see it all the time as I'm watching these games, like I'll see, like, for example, today I was watching 76ers Pistons from 1990 and Barkley's down in the post. He's, he's -hmm. backing somebody down. He gets double teamed and he kicks it out to some guy who's standing. I think it was Mike. uh, I can't pronounce his last name. Mike Jaminski. Mike Jaminski. Mike Jaminski. And he's standing, he spots up at 15 foot jump shot. And I'm just like, dude, like you could have stood like seven feet further back. Mm -hmm. You'd be even more open and it'd be an even more valuable shot. But I just, it makes me think of spaced out all the time. Yep. Um, but anyways. once you see it, once you see it, you can't unsee it. You yeah, know? you can't. It's just that's that's the thing that's like kind of hard to believe. I mean, it's it's one of those things I think a lot of people it hides in plain sight for a lot of viewers, right? Because you know, you don't it's very easy to just watch the ball, but like once you sort of see the difference, and there are all sorts of reasons why that's the case. But um, I think the person we're talking about t- today is like kind of 
a really interesting case study of someone who was born maybe 20 years too early in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. I agree. Now, so speaking of that person, uh, Reginald Miller, you wrote a, a fantastic article on him a couple of years ago, over two years ago now. Holy and shit. Just, yeah. That long ago? Oh, yeah. It's 20, That's, 27 that, months, I think. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. Wow. But, but um, you wrote a fantastic article on him. Really quickly, just try to give us a cliff notes, key takeaways. What what are what are some of the things you came out with? What are the need to knows about Reggie Miller and his game? Yeah, well, I wrote that piece. I mean, that was when the only basketball was the last dance. And it was right before the Indiana episode. That was mm-hmm. the year Indiana fought with Chicago seven game series, super tight. Uh, one of those iconic series. And, you know, I just, every so often when these things happen, you always have these discussions of like, man, look how great Michael Jordan would be in today's game. Right. I think there was like an, a recent example of this. Someone said something to the effect of it would be so easy. You get a bunch of free throws. Was it Barkley who said something like that? I don't know. But every so often this comes up, you know, where it's like, look how much easier it would be for Jordan now. And it occurred to me that like, actually, the guy who would be, if not easier, but sort of who would fit in much better with this style of play was Reggie Miller. And, you know, originally you you start this piece and you think, well, it's because he shot a lot. He was known for his three-point shot. But the more you look at it, it's kind of more, it really spans the whole spectrum. I think the, the thing that Reggie Miller had that we didn't know how to identify back when he played, but now it's like sort of a no-brainer concept is this idea of gravity gravity every every shooters have gravity and when you think about like sort of the type of player he was and really in a lot of ways the reputation he had because i think you've noted this before like if you look at his actual honors like he only made five all-star teams i forget how many all nba teams he made three three and yet he had this reputation as one of the most important players of that era largely based off his playoff performances where you would just be terrified of him being open at the end of a game. We didn't know what this was called, but this is gravity. This is what it is. I mean, now we talk about like kind of all these shooters and the gravity they have. Reggie Miller had gravity. And I just don't think that was a concept that was really thought of in those terms back in the nineties and back when he played, you know? So to me, like, I just thought that piece was important there are a lot of downstream effects too of why he played was really could have been really nice for this era, you know, from the types of threes he shot to his moving off the ball to his sort of nascent screen setting that I think today they would have taken much more advantage of all the way down to like, sort of, you look at his frame, he looks like a modern player. He's wiry strong, right? He was kind of known supposedly weak and a flopper back in the day, but you know, he was, he he looked he was a lot stronger than he looked, and so he had the body type of a player today. And it's just like the more you think about it, and the more you think about what how his he was honored back in the day, where he didn't have all these honors, but he had this reputation. And it's like I mean, this is a modern player dropped into 1995, and so to me, the premise of the piece was just like this is the guy that really we should be having discussions of. What would Reggie Miller be like today? And it was just sort of, again, natural peg to write about it. And that's kind of where it all started. And I tried to kind of go in depth to all the different ways that he would have fit in today's game. But it really comes back to that concept. He had gravity. And we just didn't think of shooters in those terms like we do now. Mm-hmm. Gravity. That's the, that's the key word. You mentioned gravity. 
And then the one thing I really want to focus on, big premise for his portion of the series, is that movement shooting that kind of created the gravity. Because, you know, and in that famous Jack McCallum interview that you cite a couple of times during your article, there's the a piece SI of it. story, yeah. Yes, the SI vault, the the illustrious SI vault. Um, he said, I think it's Miller who says it or McCallum who says it, but one of them says there's, there's Dale Ellis, you know, Joe Dumars, Dan Marley, Danny Ainge, all great shooters in that era. And they had gravity to an degree, but not like Miller. And I would say that part of that reason is, you know, those guys were primarily spot up shooters, three point shooters, whereas Miller's like not only movement, but it's like, I'm running at full speed. I can stop at a dime. And then I can knock down shots like just as effectively as your spot up game. Can you tell me a little bit about his movement shooting and kind of technique yeah. that goes into that? Yeah. I mean, look, he was known for being this great off ball player. I mean, that's what everybody cites him for his ability to curl off screens and shoot uh, from a lot of different angles, all sorts of different footwork patterns. Uh, he'd go right, left, left, right. Uh, but I think the thing that speaks to this most again Technically, yes, it's sort of the ability to kind of catch and shoot quickly, have that quick release where like nowadays, like there really is no spot of shooting now. You have to move to get open mm -hmm. at all uh, because defenses are so attuned to stopping the three. You know, even what looks like a spot up is really just a lift from the corner or drift to the corner. You watch old Reggie Miller film and that's what he was doing then. But nobody really did that sort of stuff because the game was so geared towards getting the ball towards the basket uh, and not so spread out. You know, the idea of someone sort of moving chaotically around the three-point line to get their open shot, kind of moving with the ball. I mean, he had such a geometric understanding of spacing that today's players, they all have. But back then, they really it was not really a huge factor. So just sort of creating those passing lanes, kind of darting to the corner when you turned your head. You know, those are the types of things that he would do almost like one of the great pities, I think, of Reggie Miller's career looking back on it is that because of the era he played in, so much of that skill was kind of channeled into set plays, single double baseline screens. That was the foundation of their offense. Mm -hmm. It's a play call. It's like, hey, we're going to have our point guard dribble, dribble, dribble. The box sets. Yeah, yeah, the box sets, the uh, floppy single double mm -hmm. screens, all that stuff. It was so much in tune to like, let's, here's how we try to figure out how to get Reggie Miller the ball. And one of the great skills that he had, I think, honestly, the thing that made him most terrifying and the thing that in this era would be so valued, but just wasn't then was just the chaotic movement, the movement when the scramble situations, the ability to sort of loom as this threat. And like when the ball is here, he's going to cut to this part of the three-point line and then just get his shot off right away. And you just turned your head and rested for just a second. I mean, all this stuff we talk about with Steph Curry, um, you know, Reggie wasn't quite that level of player, obviously, but just that ability to just sort of cut and move, that was something he had that other players didn't have that sensibility back then. Um, and that's what made him so unique. It's just, it's not just the movement from the scripted movement. It's also like, what do you happen? What do you do when the game is scrambled? And like nowadays, like really going back the last 15 years, it's the first time the NBA has really thought in terms of let's make the game more chaotic. And we want to triumph off chaos rather than we're going to kind of try to set up a play and you're just going to have to run it to the letter of the law. And so that's why I sort of wonder what it would have been like today. I mean, imagine him like kind of 
doing all those sort of pin-in screens or screening for a stretch four to pop out or all this other random movement. I mean, that was what he was so good at that I think was underutilized in his day. Yeah, and um, you talk about this in the article, and it's really apparent when you sit down and watch him, but swift decision-maker, like swift, like passer, his passing reads were quick. Right very underrated passer. Very, very underrated, underrated passer. Didn't get as many assists as you would think, because mm-hmm. again, so much of what the Pacers offense was, was let's like run him off a zillion baseline screens and shoot or run him off a baseline screen so that he can throw an entry pass to Rick Smith's or an entry pass to Antonio Davis or Dale Davis or later Jermaine O'Neal. Right. So those are just not situations where he's able to get assists. But yeah, when you see him run pick and roll and sort of, draw the double he's making like the type of passing reads that you Mm -hmm. would expect to make today you know where he's you know letting the guy roll looking him off like kind of hitting him in stride that type of stuff and you're right boom boom very quick you know he really had no wasted movements yeah and the same thing with his drive game you know his he did use like the the old school like triple threat in the mid-range a little bit when he catch it on on the elbow but all of this is all you're saying is basically he's like the perfect read and react player in today's mm-hmm. game, you want that, and it, like everybody's running, reading, react offense pretty much now. It's not really that like that Jerry Sloan patterned, like sequential type, absolutely um, offense. So now to continue with that, one of the one of my fascinations with this project, and the reason I wanted to do like '90s, 2000s, is because I'm like, I'm like pretty sure for the most part. Right. There's probably some exceptions, but no, nothing new is happening in the 90s and 2000s. Nothing brand new, at least. Right. Where it's like this brand new archetype of player. The league at that point has been around long enough where there's precursors, precursors to the trendsetters. You know what I mean? So Reggie Miller, high volume movement shooting, you know, the the gravity, all that stuff. There is like there is remnants of that in the past that come from that. You could see like signs of like the evolution to where Miller is and then, you know, Miller becoming what we saw in like, you know, the Rip Hamiltons, the Kyle Corvers, the Pages Stoyakovich's, and then all the way to these, you know, the Curry's and the Clay Thompson's of today. But is there anyone from the past who reminds you of Miller? So before Miller? Yeah. I mean, look, there are certainly some, I mean, a lot of times you're thinking about that wiry, skinny guy coming mm-hmm. off screens. I mean, one of the guys that I often think about that may be a bit of a curveball here is Alex English mm-hmm. from Denver, where he's this, again, just super skinny. Denver played a very, like, kind of quick-hitting yeah. Doug Moe. And so he would, all, he would get all these points on just sort of catch, drive in and lean in and shoot. Um didn't really put the ball on the floor a whole lot and just kept just getting buckets. So that's like one guy that really stands out Um, to the larger point about the sort of tactical evolution or the stylistic evolution of players. I mean, I think one of the things that happened in the nineties and kind of continued on to the two thousands until it was sort of broken up by the Nash Suns or whatever, and it, it took a couple of years for when the illegal defense rule came in. There's a mm-hmm. section in the book that really changed a whole lot. Um, but that took a couple of seasons. But one of the things that happened is that, you know, in the eighties, the game was very like kind of fast paced up and down. And something that really came into play was transition defense. You know, you start with the, the Pistons, Chuck Daly. And so the game slowly became more of a half court game because guys were better at just sort of positioning bodies back in transition 
And so then Reggie Miller comes into this, this world where at the beginning of his tenure, the Pacers were a very up-tempo, kind of loosey-goosey type of team. Uh, you, you may remember them playing the Celtics that one year in the playoffs. 91. Chuck yeah. yeah. Chuck Person. Love Chuck Person, the rifleman. Yeah. So that team was like a very like, we don't play any defense and we just mm-hmm. run up and down the court. And they don't really get anywhere. And I think that backlash a little bit into the type of team that they became you know, under Larry Brown and going forward where they tried to basically be the junior Knicks, but they had Miller. And so they were a very slow paced team, very much like, again, we set up in the half court and we're running this dude off screens. And there are guys that ran off screens like that too. I mean, like Dale Ellis is someone you mentioned in Seattle who was Mm. very much like that back in the day. I mean, I mentioned English, there's probably others, but I think Miller did it from further away. Miller had a little bit more like kind of, shake to his game he had a little bit more kind of immediate kind of i zip i think he, he came through those screens like i know ellis and uh dumars ran that those similar floppy actions but the swiftness with which like miller was going at top speed when he was coming off those and sharp those angles screens. yes and sharp Whereas, angles and that uh, and that sort of manifested too in sort of what mm-hmm. he did uh, elsewhere that's why i talk about like kind of the wiry strength thing that i think is really underrated you know in his game there were guys built like him back when he played. I mean, most of the guys that are really good, especially the shooting guards, top heavy, quick twitch, kind of, I get the, I mean, Jordan esque in a lot of ways. And then obviously all the bigs are very top heavy. It's only as we get beyond the late 2000s into t- 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 today where body types are just skinny now. You know, you think about Kevin Durant skinny, like that type of skinny where it belies how strong they are in the core. They, they're almost like they're wiry strong. It's like a, I'm, I'm thinking of like kind of a piece of steel that is flexible, mm. right? That type of body. Reggie Miller had that body when nobody else did. And so he was able to kind of use it to just sort of dart very sharply through a lot of what these angles that he had on these screens. I think that made him a little bit different uh, than some of these other guys where it wasn't necessarily as much about how do I get through you in that way i'm trying to set up my shot for him it was like a lot of quick start and stop that i think he really brought to that whole position and it again is a shame that like sort of so much of how he was used was like let's figure out how we get him open and that's the whole point of our game plan and there wasn't as much consideration to let's use him to get other people open and i think that's where i would have loved to have seen him now Mm -hmm. Now, um, really quickly, actually, you said something that's really interesting about the way we view body types nowadays. And I always, I always joke about it. Like, for example, you mentioned Antonio Davis. He had a great upper body, great upper body. You know, he's muscular. The the shoulders are all pure. Yeah. Yeah. Great, like great biceps, you know, Ben Wallace, another guy like that. And it's Ewing. Look at Patrick Ewing. He was like, yeah, they're, Mm -hmm. they're just Dwight Howard was sort of the last one that was like huge chest. Like that type of that body type. And it's not like, you know, we can't like there aren't guys that could get built with the genetics in the NBA that could become built like that. But the thing is, like the training is I'm somebody who loves weight training. Right. I'm a huge weight trainer guy, not not a huge guy per se, but a huge weight trainer guy. Right. And, you know, I like to work on my body, I like to work on my physique, the aesthetic. And I know for a fact that that's not making me better at basketball, like no. me having bigger biceps not going to make me better at basketball. Mm. 
And I think that's where today, like you look at the perfect build body type, like a Scotty Barnes, look at Scotty Barnes, how he's built, you know, like wiry, but like he's strong, he's muscular. Mm-hmm. Um, so all, the, all the strength is in the hips now, not in mm-hmm. the up here. Right. Mm-hmm. So you look at, you know, actually the guy who I keep thinking about in this regard is like a Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart's torso one. is massive. His thighs are massive. And it's because, it, I mean, I'm spoiling some book stuff, but it's like, it's like kind of how football defensive backs are built, yeah. right? Because they're constantly shifting side to side. In a world where the game is played like this in this tiny little mm-hmm. space, your upper body matters because you're trying to go up over people. You're trying to power through people. But in a game that's played in wide spaces, you're trying to kind of dart around people. And so to be really top heavy does not help your ability to move laterally. What you need is really flexible hips. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, Reggie Miller was just super skinny to take it back to him, but he was not someone who was very top heavy, you know, but what he had that, I mean, you watch the way he moved. It was really remarkable. He just sort of darted side to side and he would just sort of, thrust his shoulder through you it was actually really annoying like it a lot of the same ways that trey young like pisses people off now mm. with his like foul drawing that's what reggie miller did back in the day basketball grappling yeah and he'd have this like move where he would just mm. sort of lean right through your shoulder and then try to bank it off the glass it bothered the shit out of everybody um but that's the type of movement pattern that you can have when you're it's all about flexibility training i mean you talk about weight training really in the last decade and a half, this is like a big training emphasis, you know, where it's now exercise bands and yoga and, you know, pulling resistance on your hips. It's not powerlifting. And that's such a huge transition in the NBA that is, I mean, look, I'm now spoiling some book stuff, but yeah, you've hit on something. And to take it back to Reggie Miller, like that was him. That was his, that was where his strength was. It was all in like that area of his body. Uh, so that when he kind of thrust through, you could not, you, he, he darted in such straight lines. So you could like grab and bully him as much as you wanted. And that's what the Knicks would always do. They would, I mean, really, if you ever watch like just some of the, some of the clips of the Knicks, just like grabbing him on the baseline, mm-hmm. all these guys, but he would always find a way to to break through, not because he was strong up here, but because his legs could get through it. And this one sharp movement and they could like curl around you so so sharply and at such different angles. Like you that that was the ability that he had that made him so tough. And that's why, you know, everybody was like, how do you he always got the ball, even though you knew he was always trying to move around to get it. Uh so yeah, I think uh that's why again, I wonder you put him in a world where like that level of strength is just normal. That's what everybody is. And just what, what does that look like? I'm very curious. Before I ask you that question, I wanted to say one more guy before I forget who this is a like an older reference, but uh what do you think about he's a good precursor about John Havelcheck? Yeah, I mean, I think there's I was watching it's funny, I've been watching a little bit of him because I've been watching mm-hmm. some Russell old Russell tape the last couple of days. Yeah. Rest in peace. Rest but, in peace, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is something to it, but I think um I think the biggest difference is just in the past, so this is a very 90s, late 80s thing. As the game slowed down, the intricacy of half-court set plays increased. So there wasn't really, I mean, the idea of like a single double or a floppy, like that sort of thing, obviously that was a bit around back in the day, mm. but much more of the game was played in 
semi-transition back in the day because there was there was half court play, but everyone was so bunched together. There wasn't as much sort of care placed to like you stand here, you stand here, you stand here. We're gonna run a set play. So I think that in a lot of ways, Reggie Miller was one of the first where it's like that's the offense. Like that's just what we do. We're gonna single double screen, like and just have him pick all these sorts of alignments. I think it was much more intentional, some of the set plays with some of these guys. So back in the 90s, because, again, the game was slowing down. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there are definitely some parallels with sort of Havlicek's ability to kind of lean through people, right? You think of one of those famous shots he had in the 70, uh, the 1976 finals, I want to say, where he's, like, leaning in and banks Mm -hmm. off the glass, uh, you know, against Phoenix, that double. So there's some parallels for sure. But, yeah, I think that's the, the difference is just, you know, that's an offense unto itself now in the 90s. Um, where in a way that wasn't necessarily as coordinated as it was then. Yeah. So now you were kind of hinting at this. So like, I wonder what it looks like today. I'm curious. And I know we, we've talked about this, me and you, and like rankings are kind of counterproductive, but it does help like not so much the actual numerical ranking, but like just like the kind of player he is, the tier of player he is. Mm-hmm. And if we just, just dropped Reggie Miller today, right? how he was when he was in his prime where is he like in the league hierarchy yeah it's a good question i mean the obvious comparison is to the two warriors shooters Mm -hmm. one of the things that i think he has in a way like for all the talk of sort of gravity and these like shooters that like the the oh shit shooters so to speak there aren't that many who are like kind of scaled up into an offense today it's really steph Curry. When you think about like, this is what the offense is there. Maybe I'm thinking, maybe there's some others, but you know, like I, the year that Kyle Korver was awesome for Atlanta, that 2015 season, like, or JJ Redick maybe, but even they, even Miller was on another level than from them because Miller had more ability to play with the ball in his hands. Mm-hmm. I think what would happen is a lot of the, like when we think about Curry, like, one of the things that us nerdy types always talk about is like kind of just his mere presence turns a game to a four on three. I suspect that Reggie Miller might be in some ways without possessing as much of the ball handling, passing ability of Steph would have that same characteristic where it's like, we could scale this guy up into like an entire offensive attack and we can play more guys who don't shoot. We can play better defenders. Again, a different version of what the Pacers did. And that would allow, but it would just be scaled, spread out a little bit more. Um, Whereas the Pacers kind of used him to help their post players get better post position. Today, a team could use Reggie Miller, run him around semi-transition, like kind of run him off a pin down or have him screen, ghost screen for a really good ball handler. Um, that sort of thing. And like where he would rank, I suppose you would probably have him somewhere between where Steph and Clay are right now, mm. where Reggie, I think, doesn't have as much range or as quick emotion as Curry or as, as Thompson, but is a I and not as good defensively. But I think he's a better all-around passer, dribbler, playmaker. You could put him in pick and roll in ways he can make reads that Clay, you know, you still really had to work through. With him, like I think he would be a better offensive player than Clay Thompson. Uh, 
maybe not a better defender, but I, he's not Steph Curry, but I think somewhere between those two is kind of where you would probably rank him. I don't know exactly what that corresponds to, but I just wonder like what would happen if you, if you use Reggie Miller and his ability to sort of, you had him set more screens, had him rub off, set more ghost screens, move him around in more chaotic ways. Like, uh, became a deadlier transition team. Like told him, hey, it's okay to you should shoot 10 threes a game. Like you can shoot step backs. He had a step back jump. He did. Three. He had a really good step back. Um, you know, just sort of let him turn loose in that regard. And think about like every time he would sprint up the wing, what would that would mean for like your downhill grab and go penetrator off the break? You know, how much more space he would provide. I suspect that if he played today his numbers would be a little bit better, but we would have a better ability to understand his impact. Like we would be like posting all these videos of like, look at Reggie Miller and how he created this open shot. Look at this Reggie Miller cut assist. Look at like all the attention of Reggie Miller over here. And and we would be able to sort of understand like why his value is indirectly so much more than what his numbers would be. So I don't know if like kind of, where he ranked in the nineties versus where he ranked now, I, I suspect it'd be around the same, but I think we'd have a better understanding of what his true power was as opposed to back in the day where he was sort of seen as, you know, he, he's a great shooter and yeah. great playoff performer, but we wouldn't fully understand. We have a better appreciation of just like how Reggie Miller can scale up into an offense mm-hmm. and a good offense. So here, I have this theory about um, the players that I've chosen for this series, and it's kind of like so. Think of think of the scenario as we have all the information about basketball in terms of the people analyzing it, not the game itself, but the people right, analyzing right. it and the training methods. Yeah, in the '90s as of and today, right? And we're thinking about them, and like so, Miller got underrated i believe by like the people deciding awards and like the the media back then but if we had today's media i think that his ranking back then would be higher like that that tier of player he would be the amount of impact he could create on a game would be higher back then than now because he was zagging so much when everyone else was zigging i think that's probably right yeah i think that's probably right i mean he came in an era where the shooting guard was supposed to be jordan-esque you know, and nobody this, could be Jordan. Yeah, but it's stylistically even just, uh, you know, you were an all around player. You got a lot of rebounds and assists. You went on one a lot. You were explosive. You could dunk on people, um, sort of that platonic ideal. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't that. He was a very different type of player. I mean, he's a very different type of player than, forget Jordan, like very different than Clyde Drexler, very different than Mitch Richmond, very different than Joe Dumars. Very different than Steve Smith, Allen Houston. I'm trying to think of some of the other big shooting guards of that era. Um, very different than Chris. I mean, well, Chris Mullen was, I feel like, the close of his era. They were, the they were teammates for a while. Yeah, yeah. No, I've seen it. So I was watching the 98 Bulls finals, and I saw a couple times they would do the thing that the Warriors do now with, like, Clay and Curry or Poole mm-hmm. and Curry. Well, they'll just have them run next to each other. But it yeah, obviously that, be, like, right under the rim as opposed to, on the perimeter and it would, it would get people, you know, it would oh, yeah. to the ball on the wrong guy. And then it's like, Oh shit, shooter. Both of them were that. 
Yeah, I mean, they did a lot of the stuff that the Warriors did in the early days of the mm-hmm. Steph Clay combo, you know, the figure eight, crazy eight type of stuff mm-hmm. that they did. Yeah, it was very much ripped right from the Pacers. Um, the the premise of what, again, nothing that the Pacers or Reggie did, teams do that stuff. The difference is not in how they run those plays. It's in the mindset of we are using this guy as a chaos engine not just someone we're trying to get open. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the big difference between now. And one of the things that the Suns did, and this is a part of the book and like kind of what was that they, 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 they allowed the league to embrace, like it's better to sort of embrace chaos, chaos and try to benefit from it. If the defense doesn't know what the hell we're doing and we're liable to do anything that benefits us, we can play off these mm-hmm. many different things. Right. And so we want to have this rep as being kind of a little bit crazy. We want this rep of, yeah, we're willing to shoot from anywhere. Like we're willing to do anything. And that, that actually is sort of what, and Reggie Miller, again, very much a reputation player too. Like this is another way I think he was ahead of his time. He played up his reputation as like a clutch shooter because he understood in ways that everybody now gets that the meme, the like sort of reputation of like that dude, we cannot let get open and that dude's liable to shoot from anywhere. And we can't that all of that sort of fear has a positive effect. The rep, it's more important. The rep has to be more important than the reality. And he understood that he played that up like with the guard, with MSG, with sort of his like media reputation with all that. He was one of the first players to understand that like that your rep is more important than your reality. And today that's just a very accepted thing. I mean, Steph Curry doesn't strike the fear of God into players because he can shoot the ball really well. Steph Curry strikes the fear of God into teams because he's literally willing to do anything and he's dancing after every three and he's shimmying. And it just, it, it, it looks like, like it tilts you as an opponent. To use a mm-hmm. poker term, do you know what I'm? You know what I'm talking about? Puts you on tilt, makes you. Yeah, yeah, I think I do. And so my analogy would be, he, like, he's like the guy at the bar who's had 15 beers and just has nothing to lose, and he'll do anything, right? Well, he so he wants you to think that he, he is not in control, but he is mm-hmm. in control. He's playing off that guy, yeah, right. So on the court, you're just you don't know what he's going to do. You have no, you just are fearful of this sort of storm, mm-hmm. and whether he hits, I mean. The great example I provided to bring back to Marcus Smart is Marcus Smart just acts like a shooter. And like nobody actually bothers to check that. Oh, you know, he's only a 32% shooter from there, right? You guys closing out on him really hard. You guys like being like, oh shit, we can't let Marcus Smart shoot. He's not a good shooter, but he's so good at pretending that it doesn't matter. That Reggie Miller was like a one of the first players to really play off his own reputation that way. Mm-hmm. Um and like that, because if you look again at the reality, like, yes, his playoff, his his playoff, he had some great playoff moments. He also had some bad playoff moments. You know, 1999 against the Knicks, bad playoff series. He was amazing the next year. But you don't remember the bad moments. You just remember all the clutch shots. And so that he would use all of that would sort of play into the game that he and the Pacers played. And it just, it kills me that the Pacers were such a, traditional like we want to be a defensive first orderly team because imagine that on a team with a sensibility like the warriors or like a modern team where it's like we want this chaos we want you to be totally unable to guess what we're going to do we want 
that reputation. He, I just would love to have seen him like that. What would that have done for his game? What would that have done for the league? That's where I wish he was in this era instead of that era. Yeah, I think uh, Seth Partnow talks about this a little bit in his book, The Concept You're Getting At, where it's like, what's the, the difference? there's not really that much of a difference between like a 34% a 38% shooter from the corner, as long as they're getting closed out on, as long as you're getting the defense to yeah. react. There's a, there's a bit in my book about this too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, it's like, here's a stat that I, I'll share. Like I have to remember the exact number 30 to be a, between a 33 and a 40% shooter. Right. That's like what one make every like, that's like seven or that's like 10 makes over the 82 game season. If my mm-hmm. math is right. Right. A difference. No, it's more than that, but you know, it's like, it's like a make a game. Yeah. Right. Something. That range. If half the league is in that range and half the league is shooting the same amount, what, do, why does it matter? I mean, it, whether you're 30, it, it, as a defender, you can't possibly sift through all of that. But the one way you definitely can't sift through all of that is that the thir- if is if the thirty three percent shooter acts like the forty percent shooter, and if the forty percent shooter is Reggie Miller, is a player like Reggie Miller who like the types of shots he's hitting at forty percent, they're like all over the highlights. He's like rubbing it in your face. He's done it in big moments. You don't defend him like he's a forty percent shooter. You defend him like if he gets open, he's going to make it every time, and that has so many ancillary benefits to a team that I think. In his day, they just did not. It was the best way that they sort of manifested that was like they used him to get better post position for Rick Smiths mm-hmm. on some of those baseline screens where he'd throw immediate entry passes. Today, you could play that off getting another shooter open, off so many other sort of sets of movements that the value you would be able to benefit from that so much more than they thought to benefit from that in the 90s because it was an era that was not as kind to sort of uh, that sort of play that this continuous play, this uh, spontaneous, that's the word I'm looking for. Spontaneous play. It it wasn't, Mm -hmm. it wasn't nearly as valued then as it was, as it is now. And so that was Reggie Miller had to do his thing within a structure that was automatically limiting to -hmm. what it could have been. Maybe it was better for the Pacers, but it was not better for him. Uh, And I think that, to your point about like how we have valued Miller using today's insight back then, I think we would have had a better appreciation for like, Oh, they chase Reggie Miller. And suddenly this guy is more open because they're worried about Reggie Miller. We would have been able to spot that a lot easier now. Mm -hmm. They would have like a, and it's funny you mentioned Rick Smith because I actually talked to him a couple of weeks ago and he's like, yeah, I used to love playing Miller because you know, nobody would ever double down from the perimeter when he was when he was on the strong side, because like why why would you do that? You know why? It's, right. Um, but you even don't want him be, shooting open. Yeah. Yeah. Ahead. Beyond that, if you look at sort of how Rick Smith would get his position, right, it'd be on those single doubles, and then mm-hmm. Miller would sort of do a little rub, and then pull his man away, and then yeah. In addition to the illegal defense rule, it'd be so easy for Miller to throw the ball. Rick Smith would have a foot in the paint on every post up, and you know he wasn't very good at passing out of doubles. That wasn't his no. strength, right? So he because of the gravity of Miller pulling that defender away, it would give him like extra position. He could just turn and shoot. It was like the best thing that could have happened to him, you know? And today what would happen is Rick Smith's would be out running dribble handoffs with Reggie Miller and playing pick and pop and servicing Miller, not the other way around. So that that's right off the bat is like a major difference. Mm -hmm. And that's perfect. We're talking about, um, 
Rick Smith's weaknesses, because you touch on this in the article, the the handicaps that Miller was really dealing with. And I think there's four really crucial ones to talk about. Mm-hmm. And that's first, his, his bigs were more play finishers than, you know, um, good passers. Uh, you know, Antonio Davis wasn't exactly uh, the kind of guy you want in like the short roll making decisions on a four on three was, was it was a, uh, were the Davises like guys you want making decisions in the long roll? No, I <laughs> guess I basically just, you no, you don't want, they were just like big grunts basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that's what they were, but that was of course what the power, a lot, yeah, was a lot of power forwards and centers, but, but um, that was the case for him his whole career. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he never gets, he never really gets uh even like a, Honestly, this is going to sound funny, but like Greg Ostertag, he was not a bad passer, like for a big man at that time. Like he probably would have been a step up as a passer. Well, none of his bigs played away from the basket other than Mm -hmm. Rick Smith's on like Mm -hmm. pick and pops. But like, yeah, none of these guys were like, hey, I'm going to come out to to screen for you. or I'm going to come out and be able to run a dribble handoff and I can like do this stuff that like Duncan Robinson and Bam Adebayo do. Like, can you imagine if anyone was like even within that stratosphere? Mm -hmm. Like none of those guys were like that. Their job was to screen for him. That's all. Exactly. And then, yeah, and they would benefit off of the space he could make for their Mm post-ups. But um, so there's that. And then his guards, even Mark Jackson, who was like a good passer, but his playmaking at the guard was not was definitely not elite for sure. But they weren't the kind of guys who like like Nash, you know, who are are going to get in the paint and collapse the defense over and over again. Like they could penetrate, they could finish, but it, it wasn't to the caliber where Miller could get a lot of just spot ups off of the the defense collapsing in on his point guard. Not, not on drives, on yeah. post ups, yes. On post ups, not on drives. Well, Mark Jackson yeah. was a great post up player, right? Exactly. He, he had the size yeah. and he was a great passer. Uh, compared to other guys who were in the post, great passer compared to other guys. Is what is a great passer? He wasn't mm-hmm. a great like uh, driver. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's what you were saying essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, like, and nobody guarded him. Mm-hmm. Nobody guarded Hayward Workman. Nobody guarded uh, Travis Best. Nobody guarded Jamal Tinsley. Uh, nobody guard. Nobody guarded Michael Williams or Prue Richardson or uh, some of these other guys that I'm just going to throw out there to make it seem like I know more about what I'm talking about than I do. Uh, yeah, no, nobody guard. I mean, in the Bulls series, like Scotty Pippen basically double teamed Miller the whole series. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the whole point of what his role was. So, you know, they got wide open shots. And so, so many of those shots, you know, think about him coming off. He's curling inside the three point line off a pass from inside the three point line. So that his, that guy's man can now come help. And like, there's still, yeah, if he throws it back to the point guard, the point guard, They'll give him like a 16 footer, but even that can be more contested. So imagine if you had a guard that could actually shoot off the catch or a guard that could cut through. Yeah, he didn't have it. He never had any of that because, again, all of those guys in that back in that day, the thought was we need someone who can throw Reggie Miller the ball on single on post on these like curls. This is our whole offense. This guy's job is literally to just pass him the ball. He, they didn't think about what he would do once he passed the ball. So yeah, it's just a totally, that was another handy. I say handicap in terms of the modern sense of a handicap, you know, in terms of his own production, like major handicap. Yeah. So we're at, we've got the, the problem with the bigs, the guards deficiencies. Another thing um, coach Burke mentioned to me. So we were talking over the phone and then the following day he texted me and he goes like, Matt, I need to, I need you to think about this. 
He goes, we, all the stuff we talked about with the movement shooting, the coming off screens, all that. But remember every time he would do that, somebody would push him. Somebody would shove him. Somebody would Absolutely. steer him off his course. And you know, with shooters, how important rhythm is. And he was like, never really able to establish that rhythm. Yeah. Cause all, every play started with like him in a wrestling match on the baseline. Cause that's how they all, yeah. I mean, you, you would see like how the Knicks would literally bear hug him. Now imagine if, again, this is where in a, in this era it would be so much easier. One, no hand checking, but two, they wouldn't start plays with him way down there with all the bigs. He would be starting plays out further away where there's just more space and less, less traffic. So yeah, you would. And yeah, like you said, it, it, it definitely threw off his shooting. I mean, absolutely. It's a huge factor. <laughs> like when you think about, you think about it, like every way that the Pacers played back in Reggie Miller's day was they used, they built this handicapper around Reggie Miller to make these non-shooters better and to make this, like they could have made life so much easier for Reggie Miller. Mm-hmm. And that's a weird thing to say when you think about like them building the entire offense around his ability to curl off a screen, but there's so many ways they could have made his ability to get open much easier. You know, if they put him in more space, if they were able to kind of play, set him in different screens, I mean, they did a little bit of like sort of transition pin in screens for him to curl out. Like you see the Celtics do a lot, but not a ton. They didn't run and get him as many transition threes as he could have had. So, yeah, I mean, just all the stuff you're talking about. I mean, that's a obviously a huge handicap, but not just in terms of physicality and also just in terms of where he is on the floor. You know, it's hard to come out from underneath the basket to mm-hmm. the three point line your, your weight shifting you all the way back here, and then you have to square up and shoot. I mean, that is today, like you would not make a player do that as much sometimes, but not as much. Like, guys would be the momentum would not come all the way. Like, like think about it, you're sprinting off two screens, and then if you're fading to the corner, then you're like really going all the way back there, and you have to get your footwork right. That was that's hard to do, especially if you're being shoved at the beginning of these plays. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you got to that last point pretty much. The so Bob Hill, you know, when he was coaching, they had you know Chuck Persons, Detlef Shrimp. They were faster, but that was more of like a what do they call it, funhouse mirror kind of mm-hmm. team. Nobody nobody was really taking them seriously. They gave the Celtics a hard time, but after that, you get Larry Brown and Larry Bird, and I, I think Isaiah's teams played played pretty slow too, but. That, yeah. What you said, basically, it's just these slow pace. They're not taking advantage of his ability to shoot and transition, not just, you know, off the catch, but he could dribble up, hit pull up threes, kind of like what we remember Billups for. Bryant was yeah. really great at in transition and he could finish around the rim in transition, too. He liked to to really run out and do that. Yeah, uh, and he ran. Yeah. He was a great wing runner. And so in today's game, what he would do is he would always be running to the corners and that would open the floor up for drives off the like. The way the Bucks always like run, Pace so and Space Suns, yeah, yeah, and that that was just not really he. That was he was in an era where you were classic, you know, three man weave run the lane narrowly, um, and I I think it's actually even like more. This is just a theory of mine, but I think that the reputation they got early in his career backlash into the team they were for most of his career, where yeah. I think it was very intentional. And I think Donnie Walsh is on the record saying this about like kind of we need to get tougher. We need to build like the 
the Knicks, I don't think they liked the reputation they got from those early 90s teams. Like, I think that there was a backlash to create a team that was more slow-paced, a team that was more grinded out, even than average. And I think some of that is because they got this deserved reputation as, like, kind of a team not to be taken seriously. Um, And this was, in their eyes, the move to trade like Shrimp for Derek McKee, the move to get Larry Brown, the move to kind of reimagine this team, this offense is being built through grunt workers rather than just like all these like kind of loosey-goosey shooters. That, I think, in their minds is how they got to be a contender. And so, again, the person affected most is Reggie Miller. You know, he's the – so they backlashed into the team that was worse for him. And so, Mm -hmm. again, that's kind of a theory, but I think that's a – a huge factor is, you know, they almost, you know, if the if they had all been reversed and maybe they didn't have those five or six years where they were kind of like, a, I mean, they were nothing in the 80s, so it's better than what they were. But yeah. If they didn't have those five or six years of being kind of like kind of this team not to be taken seriously, they things might have been different for Reggie Miller uh, in terms of the style of play. But I think they backlashed into the team they became to his detriment and to their benefit. Yeah. And a similar thing, you know, just to, cause I'm really trying to tie, tie all these pieces of the series together. And I think the NBA as a whole is just tied together, but um, Absolutely. Yeah. with uh, Raja Bell told me when I was talking to him about the Suns, he's like, he said that, um, and you could see this, you know, when they trade for Shaq, they didn't they go far get, enough. Yeah. Yeah. They, they didn't go they they didn't double down. That. Yeah. D'Antoni and, has said that many times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Raja said he told me, yeah, he told me, uh, yeah, so nobody wants to push the envelope mm. super far. Everybody nobody wants. Yeah. They everybody keep wants to, yeah, and they, they, you know, everybody wants a form of relevancy, and yeah, I mean, I think you see that everywhere. I mean, it's hard to be the innovator. You know, there's a reason that Don Nelson was kind of a maverick. You know, the reason that he sort of didn't last in a lot of his spots, despite being this incredibly innovative coach, where it's like. You look at the game now, and it's like, man, Don Nelson really knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Like all the stuff that we're seeing now is like Don Nelson was on top of that, and he was like that with his teams. But the the the, the pressure to conform is very strong, absolutely. And you know, it takes real trailblazers like in this series to be to bust through. And that's why so much. This is, I think, how we should view history, right? This is how players like Reggie should be viewed. It's not about whether he was better or worse than he could have been. It's that he was this type of player that in an era that did not have a blueprint for this style of play, he provided it. So he had no like kind of backing or maybe limited backing an understanding or model to like how the type of player can be today. You know, we can watch videos so easily of other players. Like, have you noticed how players shoot basically very similarly now versus Mm -hmm. like in the, Back in the day, there were all sorts of wacky forms. And you ever watch Bill Russell shoot a free throw? And it's like, yes. what the hell is that? Yeah. I mean, the simple reason is that they didn't have tape to watch these guys. So today's players can look at, they just have the feedback loop is so much quicker. So it really, these guys who were able to kind of play like a play, a modern player back in the day, it's more impressive because they had no model to build their game off and to build their style off. They had to really stick to who they were and be special and all of that. And that's, I mean, Reggie lasted for so long in the NBA 
when you think about his longevity, it's really. Oh, I was I was going to say we've been referencing series like we referenced the '91 Celtics series. We've talked about the 1999 Knicks series. During all this time, he's basically like a top 20 player in the world. That's a decade right there. How many guys can you say that about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, even and even in the 2000s when mm-hmm. his game had slipped, you know, he would have moments where he was still. I mean, the the most underrated I think series he ever played was 2002 when they played the Nets in the first round. And they came so close to beating them. I think he had that crazy shot that shouldn't have counted, by the way, mm-hmm. at the end of game five uh, to bring it into overtime. And they had a dunk to bring into double overtime. That Pacers team was a mess. Like the Pacers were kind of, until they got their shit together with the 2004 team, and then obviously it all fell apart. I think Isaiah's teams were kind of known for being less than the sum of their parts. Uh that team in 2002 was was a team that had a lot more had just as much talent as the Nets, but like couldn't really get it together. They were this close to beating the Nets that first round, and they and Miller was the reason why. I mean, his playoff numbers that series were incredible, and because again, like his style is timeless in a lot of ways. You know, it would he he was one of one. Mm-hmm. His the way he played, and and you just wonder again, like in a world where like it's encouraged to shoot double that many threes to where like the game is built around, like we want chaos. What would a chaos engine like Reggie Miller have provided? How would he be viewed? How much more chaotic could he have been? He was so chaotic in his day. What would have happened if you transplanted him into an era where those types of skills are, are valued in all players, not just him. It would have been amazing to see. And that's why I think, you know, bring us full circle. That's why how good would Michael Jordan have been in today's game? That bores me. He was great for his era. He was perfect for it. He might have been, he probably would, he would have been great in any era, but he was built for his era. Reggie Miller, I think he may have been built for this era and just brought him, dropped in the wrong time. There are a few players, I think some of the players you've highlighted are like that. And I think he's chief among them. Mm-hmm. No, and that's, that's, it's a, uh... Beautiful way of saying it. And just to be fully transparent, you know, I I pitched the idea to you of uh, uh, focusing the episode on his peak year. And you're just like to me, Matt, like, why would that? that That's really not the point of Reggie Miller. You know, he doesn't have like a definitive peak. It's like his game is so timeless. Like you said, it aged yeah. so well, so long. He didn't really like the difference between his best year and like his 10th best year is not. It's got to be like the smallest difference, like of yeah. almost any player in NBA history, maybe like Kareem or. Ray Allen or something like that, but yeah, right. he was that longevity, incredible, almost as good as the longevity of this podcast episode. I did tell you that there's yeah, no way this right. is going to be a half an hour. You were right, and I'm honestly I'm glad because I'm I've been thinking about playing a game where I just keep talking and see how much of your book you'll give up, um, how much information <laughs> from the book you'll give up before it actually comes out. Well, now I'm going to shut up. Yeah. Uh, November 1st, spaced out how the, uh, God, I forget what the subhead is. It's a long subhead, but it's essentially how basketball changed even more than you thought. Yep. November 1st, um, definitely think that it, it, it functions very much like a anthology of the last eight to 10 years and what brought us here. And it goes big questions, big and small. Um, it's not, entirely a tactics book but it's not you know a history book it's a little bit of both i think everyone will really enjoy it um 
and yeah, there's, I've already given away some of the things that are in there. There really isn't actually a lot of Reggie Miller in there. So I'm mm-hmm. glad we were able to do this podcast uh, to talk about him. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Blazing the Trail. If you enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. It goes a long way towards raising awareness for this series. Hey, I don't make the rules here, just the podcasts. Also, be sure to download the Basketball News app for notifications whenever new articles from myself or my wonderful coworkers at Basketball News come out. That about does it for me. I'll see you guys next time for the Andre Kirilenko episode. But in the meantime, be safe and have an awesome day.